Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Hey, everyone, and welcome to week two of Twimmelfest. Super excited to have you all here. How'd you like that trailer for Coded Bias? That is just one of the things we've got on tap for this week. On Saturday, starting at 10 a.m. Pacific, we'll be hosting a group watching on Slack. And then at 12.30, we'll be going live with a panel discussion featuring the director, Shalini Kantaya. Deb Raji uh, and Meredith Broussard, uh, both of which you saw in the trailer. Uh, if you can't watch with the group, the screener will be available Wednesday morning through Saturday for you to watch on your own. You'll be emailed the link and password if you click interested or going in the agenda. Some other things that should be on your radar for this week. We had a great kickoff last week of our code names and AI for Good Hackathon competitions. The uh, AI for Good Hackathon in particular, I've got a submission on the leaderboard there. Very uh, interesting uh, NLP focused competition. I encourage you to check both of those out and participate. Very easy to uh, participate in. We've also added a bunch of community submitted sub submissions uh, sessions to our agenda for this week. Uh, so on Friday, we'll be uh, AI and machine learning and physics hosted by G. On Thursday, uh, checklists for NLP models hosted by Michael. On Thursday, the 29th, uh, we've added what it means to be the lone ML engineer at a startup hosted by Manjush. And also on Thursday, the 29th, doctors and how talking to them changed my own beliefs about the role of AI in healthcare, hosted by Ranga. I encourage you to check these sessions out on the agenda and uh, keep checking the agenda frequently uh, as we continue to add uh, new sessions. Uh, also new on the agenda is a StyleGAN workshop hosted by uh, Derek Schultz, who is an AI artist. He'll walk you through using StyleGAN to create art. Uh, and there are limited spaces for this workshop. So if it's something you're interested in, please note it on your agenda. Last week, we had the first of our ongoing series of office hours here at Twomo Fest focused on NLP. That was a great session with a lot of great questions and discussion. This week's session will be focused on reinforcement learning. Uh, so be sure to check that out if you're interested in or curious about RL. A final update, the trivia competition has been moved to next week. Uh, so you've got another week to brush up on your AI and pub trivia uh, in advance of that competition. And you can use this time to start forming teams. I wanted to send a quick note of thanks to our sponsors for Twimmelfest. Uh, these folks are not just Twimmelfest sponsors, but uh, they are really supporters of many of the things that we do uh, here at Twimmel and our community at large. Uh, they are IBM, Tekton, Prosys, Appin, Cloudera, Microsoft, LinkedIn, Paperspace, and Qualcomm. Please join me in thanking them and checking out what they're up to. All a bunch of really interesting companies. Uh, so without any further ado, I would like to get our keynote for this week, our opening keynote for this week started, and welcome on Jeremy Howard, founder of Fast AI. Hi there, Sam. Hey, Jeremy. Welcome back to the show. It's great, so to, uh, great to be on with you once again. I first had you on the podcast. It was actually a couple of years ago around this time. We were talking primarily around uh, about Fast AI version one. And then a couple of months later, you joined us for our AI Rewind series. And we talked about trends in deep learning. And I suspect we'll catch up on all of that stuff uh, this time. But once again, welcome back. Thanks so much. Uh, how's everything been going? 
Yeah, it's been it's been great. I think last time we chatted was actually at at Europe's in Montreal, and yeah, it it, it was exciting to have some software out there, and uh, particularly at that time, our NLP research. I was excited that I thought that you know this uh, I, this crazy idea of using language model pre training could actually go somewhere, and that certainly turned out to be the case. Um, since that time, it's been a really uh, unique time in fast AI's history, which is that I uh, stopped doing courses for 18 months in order to focus on building the most solid platform I could. During that time, uh, Sylvain Gouger and I wrote Fast AI 2, which is a rewrite from scratch of the library, and a book. And and then we put out a course with all the material from those two things. And in, in that time, we built a comp pretty complete platform for data science, machine learning based coding uh, and publications. So we, we released something called NB Dev, which is a, a complete framework for building software and documentation in notebooks. We released something uh, with Hamil Hussein called Fast Pages, which is a system for using notebooks to create um, blogs and articles. We created uh, Fast Doc, which is something for using notebooks to write publication quality books, which we used to write our book. And Fast AI 2 itself turned out really successfully. It turned into an academic paper describing the unique layered API it provides, which really allows both beginners and experienced researchers to really quickly uh, uh, reach and go beyond um, best practices. Awesome. Well, we will touch on a bunch of that in more detail, but uh, before we dig in, I'd love for you to spend a few minutes um, kind of level setting everyone on your your background. Uh, you know, we've gone through your background in the prior interviews. I tend to remember it as you uh, were a McKinsey consultant at age 12, you joined Kaggle at age 14, and then you founded three deep learning companies by age 16. No, no, nothing like that. <laughs> I was at McKinsey when I was 18, and I stayed in consulting for uh, nearly 10 years, which um, was not my plan. I planned to be an entrepreneur. That was my hope, and I planned to be in consulting for two years. And uh, as one does, I got mixed up in the rat race, you know, and uh, found myself wanting to reach the next level of that consulting career and... Uh, so I think two years would have been a great plan. To, uh, you know, nearly a decade is far long to be in consulting, but I think it's useful background to understand business strategy and logistics and processes and HR and stuff. And then, yeah, I started two companies, which was an email company called Fastmail and an insurance pricing company called Optimal Decisions. They both went well. They're both still going strong. And then uh, helped Anthony Goldblum get Kaggle started, and then, yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things at Kaggle was as the chief scientist there, I was involved in creating all the competitions and involved in studying all the solutions. And I had not really done much with neural networks for 20 years at that point, but I always thought at some point they'll come back. At some point, you know, we had quite a lot of success with neural nets uh, in the mid-90s on kind of marketing campaigns and stuff. But particularly after Random Forests came along, I felt mm -hmm. like this is just much faster and more convenient and cheaper. <laughs> uh, it cost millions of dollars to buy the hardware needed to run a neural net in the mid-90s. But yeah, at Kaggle, I saw in 2012 winning solutions starting to appear to competitions that used neural networks. But now they weren't single hidden layer nets anymore. They were deeper nets, deep learning at that time meant like, I don't know, maybe five layers, five to seven layers. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so I um, I was pretty excited. I felt like this is what I've been waiting two decades for. And so uh, that was when I started Analytic, which I thought was, you know, which was uh, deep learning in medicine. I thought that was the biggest low hanging fruit for impact. Um, and I really wanted to show people that deep learning can make a difference in medicine. And uh, that was super successful. Uh, today, the use of deep learning in medicine is pretty well established. It's still being developed, but it's pretty well understood. Yeah, but uh, I guess I felt like that was just one little thing. You know, it was not 
t- you know, there was so much more we could be doing, and it was far more than I could do myself. So that's when um, my wife Rachel and I started Fast AI um, to try to be a much higher leverage, like let it make it so that hundreds of thousands of people can build their own analytic, but in whatever field they were passionate about, you know, whether it be journalism or disaster resilience or access to water or legal or whatever. So, yeah, that's that's how I got to there. Right, right. You mentioned that the insight that led to you starting Analytic was um, kind of seeing some low-hanging fruit. And I'm wondering, where do you think we are in the machine learning adoption cycle? You know, everything's kind of mixed up and confusing now with uh, the pandemic, uh, and a lot of people are are... I think projecting things that they're seeing with the pandemic on the machine learning AI market. I see that conversation on, on Twitter sometimes. Um, and I'm, I'm curious what, where you think we are. We, you know, is this a kind of a breathing period that we're in, you know, driven by, by COVID and everything that's happening there? Are we still at the very beginning? Is it maturing? What's your take? Yeah. Um, I mean, Every significant-sized company is using AI somewhere now, pretty much. Um, so it's very well established at this point in some certain areas. But I'd still say it's very early days. And one of the reasons it's very early days is that it's still too difficult and data-intensive and compute-intensive. There's a lot of people who got their start through fast AI courses who are now running groups at big companies and they're hiring, you know, they're often hiring fast AI alumni uh, or writing their own books or their own courses. And so we're certainly getting a, a spreading of knowledge, but we need to make things simpler. You know, it, it takes really well over a hundred hours of study, um, even with the fast AI book or courses and software to to be a practitioner, and that's assuming you've got a really strong coding background. That's just too long. It's also tough that the a lot of folks in management positions, they were around before the kind of the AI revolution started, so they don't understand it. They don't know how to hire the right people. They don't know how to sort through the bullshit, you know, whether it be from vendors or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of steps that we need to go through to allow the average company to do the kind of stuff that the Facebooks and the Googles are doing right now. And so I think that sounds like still early on, but, you know, demonstrably kind of well accepted. Yeah, that sounds right. (laughs) Uh, And so what do you think that means for folks that are just getting started? They you know, haven't started with deep learning, maybe not even with machine learning, you know, they've come across uh, maybe one of your courses or one of the study groups we offer through our community. And they're wondering, you know, is this something that, you know, they should still be investing in? Yeah, I think it's critical, you know, in in, in nearly every field. Um, there's an increasing gap between those that can speak and do AI and those that can't. And um, it it varies by field, but domain experts who also understand how to practice deep learning are really, really highly valued. They can start startups and quickly get huge amounts of investment. They can get employed at at vastly increased salaries um, because what they can do is they can bring their domain expertise, whether it be in in legal or medicine or whatever, they can combine it with this incredibly leverageable, powerful toolkit. So um, to me, it's, yeah, if you've got to the point where you're asking yourself the question, is it worth investing in learning AI and deep learning? Uh, the, The answer is almost certainly yes. Not so that you can become an AI person, but so that you can add that to your existing toolkit and become a you know AI enabled X, where X is whatever you're already good at. Mm-hmm. So you've mentioned 
kind of a bunch of things that are new with fast AI and, and some of the things that you've worked on. Let's maybe, you know, dig into the latest version of the library. And, you know, now that that's out in the market and you've uh, kicked off courses with it, you've written a book about it, you know, how's that going? It's going great. You know, I, I love hearing about all the stuff that people are building with it, you know, so I, I have a I have an alert set up to tell me every time somebody publishes another paper that cites FastAI, the library, and it's a continuous stream of cool stuff, particularly in the bioinformatics and proteomics kind of space. Um, FastAI is kind of huge, particularly people combining it with with ULM fit, because um, FastAI certainly provides the most capable ULM fit implementation. We hear a lot of our students saying that, you know, they've brought fast AI into their companies and it's allowed them to, you know, a lot of people are saying like, oh, I use, you know, our company used to use TensorFlow and Keras and we switched over to fast AI and all of our models immediately became more accurate and less code to maintain and to understand and that we're building on top of them faster and easier. You know, also because you know, this really important thing, which is it's a, it's a layered API, so you can go deeper and deeper and deeper, and at every point, there's a delightful API for you to use. Um, we're getting more and more, we're seeing more and more people becoming experts at the deeper levels of those foundations and are able to contribute pretty substantive foundational improvements to, you know, for example, there's a computer vision library, which is entirely GPU accelerated, um, that we wrote from scratch, uh, and you know, people are adding in new augmentations or improving the the computer vision primitives. Um, it's it's really fun. It's really exciting to see. Mm-hmm. And this is it was last uh, Fast AI V one that was a rewrite from TensorFlow to PyTorch. Is that right? Yeah. So Fast AI V one was a pretty pretty simple, relatively thin layer where the the course had originally been a, a TensorFlow. Well, it's originally a Theano course, and then it became a TensorFlow and Keras course. And we moved part two of the course to PyTorch because trying to do the research level stuff in Keras was just too clunky. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is just when PyTorch came out. And so that became FastAI, the library 0.7, which was a really thin little level of utilities to simplify a few things because PyTorch, particularly at that time, came not at all batteries included. You know, it was really something you built things on top of. And then so then when we realized that we really needed to use PyTorch for part one of the course, which is designed for absolute AI beginners, we realized that we, we couldn't just do it in raw PyTorch because that, you know, to create a network required you know, subclassing and object, you know, object-oriented principles. It required writing a training loop from scratch. It, it required, you know, updating the weights with the gradients. Like, way too much stuff for a top-down approach where you want to say, like, okay, here's, let's train a model. Okay, click train. Here we go. Mm-hmm. So that's what FastAI v1 was. It was kind of the minimum necessary that we could to give, get people going, up and going with PyTorch. But in practice, once they went beyond that, they were generally going back and doing stuff in pure, pure PyTorch to really build much further. So V2 is really all about saying, like, when you're ready to get the next level deeper to like improve your performance, speed, accuracy, you know, make it work on more data types, whatever, every time you go one level deeper, you'll find a really nice, clear, beautifully designed API to work with. And at every point, you can always integrate with pure PyTorch, Torch Vision, other training loops really easily. So for example, when you um, download FastAI, it comes with a number of notebooks showing you how, without any changes to to your existing code, you can upgrade from pure PyTorch training loops, Catalyst training loops, Ignite training loops, whatever. Like it, FastAI integrates with 
all these other things really easily. It comes with a notebook showing how to use transformers with it. it comes with a notebook showing how to use torch vision with it. it comes with a notebook showing how to use implementations with it. Um, so it's it's really yeah, it, it's really easy to just grab the bits that you want and 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 delve as deeply as you want, while still providing the same four lines of code to to run one of the built-in applications. Sounds like you're pretty happy with the decision to shift over to PyTorch. I still see that question come up all the time, TensorFlow versus PyTorch. Is your answer to that PyTorch or is it fast.ai? Fast yeah, it's it's PyTorch, but I wouldn't use PyTorch raw. You know, there's, there's so much that fast.ai does for you that the chance of you getting all of those things right yourself is pretty small <laughs> like you know how do you deal with batch norm layers when you do transfer learning how do you deal with discriminative learning rates how do you deal with which layers are meant to have weight decay and which aren't like there's 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 so many things to do carefully yourself and i don't think i've ever seen a research paper code library that does even the majority of those things correctly so we pretty much find we can always dramatically improve any project we see just by porting it over to FastAI generally requires us deleting about two-thirds of the code and okay. getting dramatic improvements to the performance. So I'd say, yeah, start start with you know learning FastAI and learn PyTorch well. Like I described, FastAI is designed to be something which gives you really convenient access to the PyTorch machinery as you need it. And you know, our view is to learn something. To, to learn deep learning, do it through projects. Like, don't don't procrastinate the start of projects by spending months, learn, you know, relearning linear algebra or calculus or, you know, the entire API of PyTorch or something. Like, you get build something right now. Like I said, it's only four lines of code to get started. And then you're experimenting, you're iterating, you can see whether, you know, what whether it works for you and how it works and you know so many people tell me they they make the mistake sometimes for for years of procrastinating actually practicing deep learning by just delving deeper and deeper into the foundations and the theory and I've almost never heard a practitioner tell me that they did that and they're glad they did. Mm-hmm. You know, that's stuff that you want to learn eventually, but you should learn it in the context of, of your practice and your development. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the, the foundational idea behind the deep learning for coders approach contrasted with the more traditional, like a yeah. word. Yeah, and it's important to realize it, it doesn't mean you don't go as deep. You, you, you generally go deeper, but it's just an ordering issue, you know. So we still have a uh, one of the deepest computational linear algebra courses around, you know, and 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 you'll learn how to do, you know, all kinds of matrix decompositions and implement them from scratch in your own code, which almost nobody teaches. In fact, for Rachel and I to get to a point where we could make that course we had to write all this stuff ourselves from scratch because all the code we found was 30-year-old Fortran code, you know. <laughs> um, so you, st- it, 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 you still go just as deep and generally deeper. Um, but the important thing we know from from research into learning methods is that the human brain learns better when it has context, when it has a reason to learn, when it understands the purpose of, of what it's doing. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll dig a little bit more into education in a moment. I do want to pull in a couple of questions from our audience. There seems to be a lot of interest in uh, embedded devices. So Bert is asking if you've worked with microcontrollers and Kurti is uh, talking about TensorFlow versus PyTorch for embedded uh, is embedded something that you've seen folks uh, work with the FastAI library on? Is it an interest of yours? What, what do you see happening in that space? Yeah, so um, I've certainly seen it. And everybody I've talked to who has implemented or tried to implement TensorFlow or PyTorch on embedded or edge devices hated it. 
Um, it's it's something Is that including al- like the TF Mobile and yes, yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, but it's but you know particularly on Apple devices. Um, but most people don't have the luxury of only you know supporting Edge, but not Apple devices. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's pretty much everything. Um, there's there's been this yawning chasm between the kind of the marketing that you'll hear from Microsoft and Facebook and and Google about edge deployment and the reality. And it doesn't matter whether you use FastAI or Keras or plain PyTorch or whatever. Um, unfortunately, the reality is you, um, if you want to deploy directly to an edge device, you you have to convert your modules into basically into a C or C++ format generally through something like TorchScript or ONNX or whatever. Um, Python is unfortunately a terrible language to build that kind of thing in because it's very dynamic. So t- TensorFlow and PyTorch instead have you kind of use a subset of Python and use kind of tracing or something like that to try to guess what a C++ version of that code might do. The guessing is very often wrong. It also requires linking to kind of pre-written C++ components. Then it kind of says, oh, look, Jeremy's calling this function now, so we know that we actually have to call that function on the Edge device. Mm-hmm. And those um, those layers are full of holes. They don't have all the functionality of the original libraries. So I always try to... Uh, tell people avoid deploying to an edge device directly if you can and if at all possible um, have your edge device talk to a server over a network which the vast majority of the time people can rewrite it to work that way and that's just going to be much more convenient and things will just work if you're going to do things in embedded or edge devices just be ready for like a many 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 months if not many year journey, you'll find that the libraries don't really work. You know, they're, they're, they're full of holes and problems. They're not fully documented. Um, it's, it's really a, a mess. And uh, it doesn't matter what you trained your model with, whether it was FastAI or pure PyTorch training loop, or you used Keras with TensorFlow or whatever. By the time it's trained, you end up with a, just a regular module. Doesn't, there's nothing FastAI specific about the thing that you end up that you've trained. Um, so yeah, train things in the most convenient way you can, and then be ready for <laughs> a nightmare of trying to convert that into something that your embedded or mobile device will be able to run. Mm. Uh, so you've you've kind of just gone through this this um, iteration of all of the things that you you work on the courses, the the library. Uh, what's what's the thing that's most exciting for you right now? Oh my gosh! I don't know. Like everything. Um, <laughs> I mean, one of the things I'm most excited about is MB Dev, which is not even AI or deep learning specific at all. But it's mm-hmm. like just being able to write software in a literate, exploratory programming environment is wonderful. And I'm currently doing the V2 rewrite from scratch of MB Dev, just like I did a rewrite from scratch V2 of Fast AI. You know, I kind of like to. For me, V1 of things is the bit where I kind of see that it works and see that people like it and you know, get it out there. And then V2 is like, the, okay, now, we're now with everything I know, what would I have done differently? So that's and, one of the things I'm most excited about. Yeah. MBDev grew out of the previous rewrite of the FastAI library. Is that right? It grew out of FastAI V2. V2. And it actually kind of grew out of the earlier part two course. So we did a part two course uh, where we basically rewrote FastAI v1 kind of from scratch as the course yeah. twice, once yep. in Python and once in Swift. And the bit in Swift was with Chris Latner and his team from Google. And in the process of kind of rewriting it twice, we made it a lot better. And that was all done in notebooks because notebooks is such a good way to, to both to teach and to experiment. And so as we did it, we needed a way to turn those notebooks into libraries that we can like import into the next notebook so we can like move on to week two, week three, and so forth of the course. 
so we yeah started building something at at that time, and um, that worked really well. And um, we built a version of it for Swift as well. And it, it became clear during this time that you know I've been coding for well over thirty years, pretty much every day, and um, I've always been fascinated by the idea of literate programming, as Donald Knuth described it, this idea that you could kind of write prose, that we could kind of write something designed for humans and end up with something that machines can can interpret. And I was also always very interested in environments like um, Mathematica, where you can kind of have things that were more interactive and more multimedia and include a kind of collapsible hierarchies of things you could scroll through and look at. But none of those things ever quite worked as well in practice as I hoped. And I always ended up using, you know, I don't know, Visual Studio or Delphi or Vim or whatever. But yeah, then suddenly I was finding I was writing stuff in notebooks and it was everything that I'd wanted for decades. So yeah, so Sylvain and I decided to um, step back and see if we could actually make FastAI v2 entirely in that way. Yeah. And could we write the entire book, an actual published O'Reilly book in that way? And the answer was yes, we, we can. And so that's, that's how NBDev came along. And it's suddenly created this rapidly growing large community. And it's uh, super cool. And so v2 is actually going to create a whole ecosystem where any NBDev project can link to any other NBDev project and kind of get all of its documentation and links and stuff like that. And I've also even created um, converters for the entire Python standard library for NumPy, PyTorch, and so forth to kind of bring them into the NBDev world as well. Mm. You just mentioned some of the work that you've done in literate programming and, and we're talking about NBDev. Kai is curious, where does this all go? And do, do you push literate beyond uh, NBDev or is maybe NBDev2 the, the next step in what right. you're doing there? Right. NBDev V2 is what's beyond NBDev. You know, it's, it's <laughs> this kind of, it's this ecosystem of NBDev projects. It's also, you know, hopefully bringing FastDoc, you know, the book writing system and FastPages, the article system, and NBDev programming libraries more together. And, you know, also with NBDev, I'm, uh, the, the rewrite is doing for NBDev what I did for FastAI and what Silva worked on with me on FastAI, which is to bring a layered API to NBDev. So there's going to be ways that you can plug into NBDev to create your own different NBDev functionality. So yeah, hopefully we're going to see NBDev keep, keep growing and growing. And at the moment, it's kind of something which Mainly people in the deep learning community are familiar with it. And uh, hopefully we'll see more and more people from just general programmers building stuff with NBDev too. Mm -hmm. If I remember correctly, our first conversation, uh, this would have been, again, October a couple of years ago, 18. You had just announced that the library would be rewritten uh, and that you would do that all in notebooks. I don't think I think you were uh, some of the way there because you had made some progress on the course, but hadn't pulled all that stuff out into MBDev. And uh, I'll be honest, I was skeptical <laughs> uh, sure. that it would all work. But uh, well, I'm, I'm curious. You know, what are the? You know, you've talked a little bit about what some of the. Um, you know, what you like about those environments are there you know, drawbacks to that approach? Do you expect to see it, you know, taking off more broadly? Are other folks, you know, using MBDev to do interesting things? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly a lot of folks using MBDev now. Um, I, I don't have a list off the top of my head, but I'm seeing a lot of pull requests from different companies and a lot of people on the forums asking, you know, questions about it, show, you know, which are very clearly showing that they deeply understand it and they're using it. And The challenge is, it's directly against the kind of overwhelming direction of Python coding, which is Python is moving much more towards um, trying to become a, a, a static language with things like MyPy uh, or even things like TorchScript and PyTorch tracing. 
these kinds of things uh, only support a subset of Python, you know, a, a static, a non-dynamic subset of Python. Um, and so increasingly, I'm hearing people who kind of consider using the dynamic functionality of Python to be bad, you mm. know, where else to me, like, why would you use a dynamic language which, which pays a big price for being a dynamic language? Like, it is way, 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 way slower than any static language, like thousands of times yeah. slower often, at least hundreds of times. Um, so to me, like, you take advantage of, of that dynamic stuff of, of, um, of meta programming, you know, meta classes and decorators and, you know, make it sing. And NBDev really is about making that environment work well because Jupyter notebooks are truly live code. So when you do tab completion, whatever, in a Jupyter notebook, you're seeing exactly what's available to you because it's an actual real live code object that you're in interacting with. You don't have the, the guesses and hackiness of like MyPy static analysis or something like that. Um, so everything we're building is, is around that. You know, so uh, we also have this library called FastCore, which is a, a kind of suite of of core pieces of functionality that, that one would want to, to when you're in that kind of framework. Yeah, but for somebody who has been told, oh, only the static part of Python is the acceptable part of Python and, you know, you should be using MyPy and that kind of stuff, they're going to look at FastCore and NBDev and think like, oh, that's not, that's what, not what I've been told real programmers do. What what do you think is driving that shift in the Python community? Is it you know folks trying to to make it quote unquote grow up or get more enterprisey or something? Yeah, or? yeah, it's it's folks that don't understand what Python is, like um, but have been told that real languages like Java or whatever are you know these kind of statically typed languages. And so I'm increasingly finding a lot of people, you know, even involved in the Python core team, don't know any languages other than Python, but they feel, they tend to feel like a bit ashamed <laughs> of how like not Java Python is. And they're sort of adding these Java-y things to it. And it's, um, it's really not good for the language. So like take, take type annotations. Type annotations are fantastic, right? And in a dynamic language like Python, you should be able to do wonderful things at runtime with type annotations, which which we do. We 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 provide a Julia-like multiple dispatch system in FastCore. We provide automatic casting of types based on type annotations in FastCore. Like there's a lot of stuff we do with type annotations, but Python has almost no functionality for using these types at runtime. Um, and when you look at the actual mailing lists, everybody's only talking about static analysis with these types, which mm -hmm. I just find crazy, <laughs> you know, because yeah. um, you can't do it properly, you know, and to do it even vaguely properly, you have to turn Python into a language it's really not, and then you end up with just a really slow version of Java. And not only slow, but a really clunky version where you have to explicitly annotate everything with types, whereas every other language is moving away from that to doing automatic type inference. And in Python, we don't need it because we can actually do things at, at runtime. Mm -hmm. now you're a bit of a um, aficionado of, of languages. We've talked and you've referenced APL in the, in the past. Um, I remember when we were first doing the study group around the course, there was a conversation happening in our Slack about how your choices for variable names were unusually terse. And someone observed that you were very deeply involved in the Perl language at some point and that, you know, maybe had something to do with that. And about uh, maybe a year ago or so, you got really excited about Swift. And we talked a little bit about that rebuilding that V2, the, not the V2, was it? The versioning around the courses in the libraries confuses me sometimes. It was the part two of the V2 course, I think. Part two V3, I think. But yeah, anyway, I know what you yeah. mean. Yeah. <laughs> so part two of that course you rewrote in Swift. And we got a couple of questions here about 
kind of where you see the whole language landscape going. Curti's asking, what do you think about Julian Swift uh, for TensorFlow or Swift for TensorFlow? And uh, Pablo is curious, are you planning to migrate completely from Python to Swift in Fast AI? Uh, you talked a lot about some of the things that you like about Python, and you certainly built quite extensively on it. Where do you see all that going? Yeah, so Python is definitely the best language for deep learning right now, but it also definitely won't be in the long term. The, the, the limitations of the language are fundamental limitations in the design. I mean, I shouldn't say the limitations exactly. They're um, constraints built into the design. And so we have things like the global interpreter lock, which means that multi-processing or really multi-threading is incredibly, incredibly painful. Um, and, and, and to do it with any reasonable amount of performance is very complicated and very verbose. Um, and very hard to debug. And, you know, multiprocessing is just such a fundamental thing now with, you know, multi-core processors we all have, and particularly GPU, which is, you have thousands of, of um, things going on at once. Yeah, it's, it's, so I'm certainly looking for what the future is, but that's years away, but I want to be ready for it. Um, Swift, you know, it's, it was a huge blow that Chris Latner left Google. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that didn't cure Swift for TensorFlow, but it, it certainly injured it deeply. You know, he, he was really driving so many of the best ideas there. Uh, so I still hope, you know, I mean, there's still some great people working on that, and I, I hope it's going to be terrific. Um, but I'm certainly not as enthusiastic as, as, as when Chris was there, for sure. Um, Julia... Yeah, Julia is the other really interesting language in this space. Swift and Julia both as languages are fantastic languages and they both have what's needed for whatever the next post-Python language will be. It's, it's early days for Julia. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's early days for Swift as well, particularly Swift outside of kind of iOS programming. It's at the moment, you know, it takes quite a long time just to run a, a Swift, a, a Julia process. It takes a huge amount of memory uh, these are not fundamental, but the good thing about Julia is these are not fundamental limitations in the language. They're things that can and are being fixed. You know, the really cool thing about Julia is that nearly all of Julia is written in Julia, which unfortunately is not where Swift is. It's certainly not where Python is. You know, Python, almost nothing's written in Python. <laughs> when you're doing data science, you kind of, everything you do is hitting Fortran or CUDA or C code straight away. Mm-hmm. Uh, Julia is amazing. It's It's a little scheme parser that's kind of converting what you write in Julia into something that gets fed to LLVM and then really everything is built in Julia, which I think is super cool. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you have nice things to say about Julia because Julia does have a very vocal group of supporters. (laughs) Uh, We did a language uh, debate um, not too long ago on the show, actually in a similar format as this and the Julia Posse was super, super vocal. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Um, it's kind of like Lisp people used to be, you know. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So you know, for a while, a lot of the you know interesting things that we would talk about when, when we connected were things that were happening super low down in the kind of the deep learning stack. Like our, the last time we spoke, we were talking about, or the time before that, we were talking about, you know, things that you, you might think of as kind of minute details, uh, learning rate cycles, cycling, and, you know, dropout schemes and uh, optimizers and things like that. Chandra is asking, you know, what do you think are the most interesting deep learning research areas right now? Is it still like super low in the, you know, trying to figure out how to make training work at a basic level, or are there other areas that that you're looking at now and, and seeing as being... Yeah. Unfortunately, there hasn't been much more development in that low-level stuff. We, you know, dealing with those kind of hyperparameters is still more clunky than it should be, mm-hmm. unfortunately. And there's still very, very, very few people doing research in that area. You know, it was really... 
Leslie Smith was the guy who did nearly all of it. The, the thing I've been most excited about recently is um, self-supervised learning. So it's kind of taking these ideas from, from ULM fit around like language models, you know, which, mm -hmm. which kind of became GPT and GPT-3 and BERT and so forth, um, and thinking about doing similar things in other areas. And so self-supervised learning and contrastive loss is allowing us to do more with less. You know, we can get, we can beat previous state-of-the-art results with 10 times less or even 100 times less data. And I think that's very exciting. Are there examples outside of language models that you think are interesting showcases for where self-supervised is or oh, yeah. the opportunity is? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we have a paper hopefully coming out soon that shows how that kind of approach can dramatically improve microscopy super resolution. There's a lot of uh, papers that have come out in the last 12 months showing dramatic improvements in classification in computer vision. You know, so for example, I have a blog post about it actually, uh, self-supervised learning in computer vision. If you look at our um, ImageNet and uh, ImageWolf benchmarks, the leaderboard, all the top ones in the leaderboard are now using self-supervised learning. Um, it's such an easy thing to add as well, which is really nice. Whatever it is you're doing right now, you can add self-supervised learning to it and get generally much better results. It's particularly helpful in stuff like medicine where there's very few pre-trained models. Um, you can kind of treat it almost like a pre-training step, even if you don't have a pre-trained model. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned uh, a second thing that I didn't catch. Oh, contrastive loss. So, I mean, that's just a, a particular approach within self-supervised learning that can make self-supervised learning quite a lot better. So to generally you have some kind of data augmentation and part of your loss function is basically just to have something that's being, being able to tell whether something was augmented or not and make sure that the augmented one and the not augmented one give the same answer. Um, and it just feeds a huge amount of more signal back into the model. Uh, and again, it just means you can use orders of magnitude less data for, for the same or better results. Mm -hmm. The most recent version of the course been out for a while. Uh, what kind of feedback are you seeing from the, the latest iteration? It's been amazing, actually. Yeah, I mean, both the course and the book in terms of just what, just the ratings it's getting, like over 99% of people on YouTube are giving it the thumbs up. The book has five stars on Amazon. And it was also cool, I, I sent the book along with some of the folks at O'Reilly sent the book to a bunch of really big names in, in AI and ML and nearly all of them sent back a review. Uh, uh, and yeah, they were, it was great to see like people I have admired for decades writing how much they loved the book. Um, you know, the it, it's... People, uh, obviously, they, they, we know they love the content in terms of the top-down approach and the, you know, very kind of thoughtful to students, very empathetic approach to teaching. But I also like to hear back just people are really appreciating the time we put in to just stuff like formatting, you know, like, uh, you know, not just the paper book, but the ebook as well, like the, you know, the, the images, are super high quality, the code, you can copy it out of the kindle version you know it's it's uh the that's pretty amazing the, the whole thing's in color and you know the paper book's all in color the index is really carefully put together like it this is one of you know we we, we and o'reilly tried really hard to make it the best we can make it and so when i hear back from somebody like for example chapter four is this um it's something i've been working on for years which is basically starting with nothing at all and saying how would we build something that can do MNIST and you start with like zero and and try to make it that at every step it's like you know we start with something that literally just takes the average of the pixels for the threes versus the sevens and figures out which is closer to the average and and then gradually works away from there that until by the end of the chapter we have a actual deep learning model and a training loop and a data loader. And yeah, somebody just kind of left this feedback saying like, I can't, you know, this just feels like you've taken decades of study and distilled it down into a single chapter. And I was just like, oh, I'm so glad 
they noticed because I rewrote that chapter literally dozens of times and it's based on things that I've written previously dozens of times over many years. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's been, it's been great when people appreciate the hard work. That's awesome. What's next for the course? Um, nothing's decided. We need a new um, part two, obviously, which we still have about half the book to cover in the course. So, so we'll be covering the other half of the book, um, but hopefully also covering some stuff that didn't make it into the book as well. Uh, so it'll be, yeah, the more advanced, deeper dive into architectures and other more detailed topics. Yeah, I'm curious your take on, you know, so you've got uh, an array of courses at this point. There's a uh, machine learning course, which maybe is integrated back into... That is. That is now officially obsolete on the whole. Yep. That has been integrated back into, okay. into deep learning for coders. And the NLP course as well, is that... Um... Yeah, it, it, hopefully by the time we finish part two, it will be. Except the NLP course has kind of pre-deep learning NLP stuff around like topic modeling approaches and so mm -hmm. forth, which you kind of need to know in order to pass an exam or maybe even to like get through an interview with a pre-NLP, modern NLP interviewer or something. But you, So that's why we taught it, um, but you don't really need it that much in practice. Like you're not generally dealing with lemmatization and stop words and stuff like that. So... So, yeah, we're not going to integrate in some of that stuff, which I think is basically obsolete anyway. Um, but, yeah, we will be bringing much much of that NLP course into part two as well. Mm -hmm. Great question here from Sanyam. Uh, can you give us a, a peek into the way you go about creating kind of these top-down materials and courses? Is there a, a way of thinking that you need to uh, adopt? Certainly, you, you need to let go of the idea that you have to build everything up from the foundations, clearly. But are there other things that you, you think about as you're pulling these materials yeah. together? It's a great question. I find it extremely difficult. I always default to teaching bottom-up because it's just so much easier when, when you've got to the point of understanding something well enough that you're ready to teach it. It's so easy to teach it bottom-up. You know, because that's the way it sits in your head into this kind of hierarchy. And so it's so easy to say like, okay, here's this like low level thing. And then there's built, other things built on that. And there's other things built on that. And there's other things built, you know, in six months time, you eventually say, do you remember that low level thing I showed you six months ago? This is how we actually use it, you know? And, you know, my wife and I talk about this all the time because we both struggle with this, is that it's, it's so much harder to teach top down and so we often have to like tell each other off you know say like oh what do you think of this article we're like it seems pretty bottom up and it's like oh yeah i suppose it does but mm. you know you have to come up with uh, the junior version of the game you know it's like how do you show off a complete end-to-end -end thing that doesn't require all the knowledge um, and often that does require you know, writing new software it requires writing new approaches. Sometimes it requires fundamental research. It's it's really, really difficult. Yeah, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about community and, and what that means to you. I remember a tweet that you posted, I don't know, it was maybe a few months ago where you you shared a screenshot of your fast AI community stats. And All right. As an example, I think of articulating, conveying just what what goes into kind of building and maintaining a, a community. Um, I've got so many questions, you know, starting from why do you why do you do it? What does it mean to you? Uh, where do you see the the role of community being and what you're building around fast AI? I'll yeah, even at those for now. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, you know what it's like, Sam. You've done so much for building your community, and you know, it's it's just a, a ton of work. Um, this goes back, I mean, a long way for me. Like Fastmail, the email company I built, um, I made a conscious decision to use a third-party web forum as the kind of main support channel for that because I wanted to be like super transparent and I didn't even have moderated privileges so like anybody could know this is the unvarnished truth about what's going on with Fastmail because 
you know, people are asking these questions and hear the answers. And over, you know, a period of some years, I had something like 100,000 posts on this forum. And it was absolutely the most bustling community for email discussions in the world. And yeah, I mean, having a forum like that, it's so important because otherwise you kind of live in this... Um, this world in your head, you don't know how people are using your software. You don't know if it's any good or people are liking it. You don't know what problems they're having. So an online community is a great way to keep yourself grounded and to, um, and then it's got this, you know, it's got this great high leverage thing going on where the more people in your community, the more useful that community is because people are ask, answering each other's questions. And so, you, you know, I've noticed quite a few of the questions on this uh, on the today have been from folks whose name I recognize from our community and they're folks who have helped other people in our community so I th you know in the end I think it's great for for me it's great for fast AI it helps create this kind of self-perpetuating cycle of helpfulness I do find it requires a, a heavy hand around like making sure that people are being kind and helpful um, there's definitely a tendency otherwise for the most toxic and abusive members to have everybody else run away and then you end up with the only people left are the ones who are equally argumentative. So I certainly work hard to you know, ensure people remain kind and generous and respectful. Um, but it, it requires very little intervention, but the intervention needs to be swift and direct. Maybe switching gears uh, a bit, you got involved very quickly in the uh, in raising awareness around masks for for COVID and, and kind of dove into that. Um, you know, now that we've got some six months kind of experience, I'm curious what your reflection on all that has been, and you know where where you see. Uh, just what that experience has meant for you, I guess. Sure. Yeah, I mean, the experience itself was mainly deeply unpleasant. You know, masks are boring. And trying to convince the world of something which they don't believe to be true, and not only that, but they think is stupid, is really stressful, particularly in the early days. Um, having said that, there's there was a lot of wonderful parts of it, and particularly I got to meet and work with some really inspiring and terrific people. Uh, folks like uh, Zainab Tufekci and uh, Trish Greenholsh, Vincent Rajkumar. You know, it was, it was cool to become enmeshed in a whole different community. You know, the community of doctors and evidence-based medicine specialists and so forth and made a lot of friends in that community. Uh, and the nice thing is that these people, you know, a lot of them have become pretty famous, you know, because eventually, you know, we, eventually we were very much shown to be right. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and uh, now people are kind of saying like, oh, who are the people who told us this? And uh, so I've, I've had numerous newspaper articles written about, about me and that journey and the people I did it with. And so it's kind of cool to see the, that appreciation. Um, but overall, it's something I would never want to do again. You know, I, it's, it, especially me, I'm actually pretty introverted and to have to force myself day after day to do TV and radio and act confident and upbeat and, and no coding, you know, no coding for months. Um, didn't really suit me at all, but uh, it, you know, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad I did it. It was important. And um, now when my five-year-old daughter sees people not wearing a mask, she'll say like, Dada, why are they not wearing a mask? I thought you told everybody in the world about them. I'll be yeah. like, well, some people aren't listening. <laughs> wow, wow. Well, Jeremy, uh, I've thanked you before for all of the work that you do uh, and the courses, uh, the materials you put out there. If you're seeing the chat, uh, there are lots of other people that are grateful for the, the work you're doing. And you, uh, Sam. Thank you, thank you. Uh, and thanks once again for, you know, taking some time out to chat and share about. All right. Thanks for here. having me. Awesome. Congrats on the great uh, event you're putting on. I hope, I, I think this, uh, this viewing on, uh, is going to be fascinating of this new film. I can't wait. Yeah, we're excited about it. 
Thanks so much for participating and thanks everyone for joining us and uh, check out the agenda for more Twimmelfests through the month of October. Take care, everyone. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit TwimmelAI.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.